Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver. And our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and we are at the interview part of the show. Uh, today we have author Robert Crawford. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So, now, uh, Robert, you have got a new book out called Hollywoodland. Um, so, um, I understand you want to read a little a part of it because you think it's real important. So, maybe give us the opener of what you uh, had in mind for us. Sure, I'd love to. Hollywoodland um, launched sometime um, on uh, Christmas Eve, okay? And it's, it's, it's the kind of book that's told from multiple POVs. One of the major characters in the book is Kelly McCarthy Delmonico, who is already an established character, and she was an established character before I even began this book, March of last year. So here's the um, the opening paragraph of the book. Kelly McCarthy Delmonico, June 1924. I'm not exactly what you call a woman at $10 words or airy thoughts. Hell, the one time my late husband Dell dragged me to the opera, I would have fallen asleep if I hadn't been thinking of the tunnels before Ma- Belief, Madison Square Garden I kept hearing about. Cripes, buy me a cheap seat of the nosebleed section of a vaudeville show, and I'll be happy in a bed bug in a tenderloin flop house. Now, that paragraph shows you, especially since I read it in her voice, as I imagine it, it tells you everything you need to know about Kelly's basic character. Okay, it shows that she's married to um, to a Delmonico, the, the famous restaurateur Delmonico family of New York. He's used to the finer things in life, like the opera, but it shows you the contrast between her and her husband. He's more of a, you know, more of a, of a blue blood who just happens to be a police officer, whereas she'd be more comfortable at a, at a lowbrow vaudeville show than she would ever be at the opera. 
It also shows that she's a tunnel rat, which is, for one big obsession, something that I established the second book in the series, The Dollmaker. She loves exploring mines because she comes from a mining background. She loves exploring tunnels, abandoned urban environments. She was like the late 19th, early 20th century, what we would call an urban explorer. And she's also the best friend of Scott Carson, the, the main protagonist in the book. So this book encompasses an epic sweep, not only across the world, but across three dozen years in time between 1888 and 1924. Now, I make a lot of references to the previous books in the Scott Carson cycle, especially Town of Damalian, which was his battle with Jack the Ripper in 1888. But it also makes references to books that I'm still in the middle of writing. So while the book, I think, stands alone, it would help if you read Tatter and Amalian and then maybe the Dollmaker after that in the interest of context. Okay. Now, so let's let's talk about your character, Scott Carson. Who is he? Like, where, where does he come from for you? Scott Carson was first created in November of 2012 when I first began writing Tatter and Amalian. He's the guy that invented moving pictures. Okay. We tend to give that credit to that invention of guys like Edison, Canulara, Le Prince, and so forth. But Carson was the guy who actually made the breakthrough in moving pictures when Buffalo Bill was doing a show for Queen Victoria for a Diamond Jubilee at Windsor Castle in 1887, which actually did happen. Now, Carson can't prove that he invented moving pictures because when he was in the in his makeshift dark room in the basement of the hotel they were staying at, the end of the celluloid caught the end of a candle flame, and it just went up, and it, it burned him severely in the process. You see, so he's, he's a, a budding cameraman. And when he promised Buffalo Bill in 1887 that he could make the breakthrough from moving pictures, Bill decided to hire him as his cameraman. And sure enough, he made throw in his promise. He developed motion pictures. He made his big breakthrough with Queen Victoria in center frame, but he can't prove it to anybody. So over the course of his life, he's a photographer. He's a pioneer and cameraman. Eventually, later in life, he becomes a, a, a crime scene photographer for the NYPD. And then eventually he migrates his way to, um, to Hollywood, which also takes place in Hollywood land, hence the title, and he becomes a motion picture cameraman. Now, these progressions in his life, some of which I had charted out way back in 2012 when I first began writing Tattered Damalian, to me seem not just a natural progression in his career arcs, but they have like the air of inevitability, if you know what I mean. It just felt so natural to have him do this and then this and then this and then this. And his career as a cameraman features, you know, first and foremost, center stage throughout, I'd say, the second half of Hollywood land when he arrives in Innsville in the, on the Malibu coast in 1912. So that, that's where the book takes place. It's, it takes place all across the world in the concrete canyons in New York, in, in England, in, in Buffalo Bill's famous hotel, the Irma, in Cody, Wyoming all the way down to um, World War I France and through the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, all the way to Hollywood. Now, at the time, when I first began this book in March of last year, I had a pretty exact idea of where I wanted to start. Years ago, I started rolling around in my head, okay, what if Jack the Ripper had lived at the end of Tattered Damalian? What would happen? Okay, but I just didn't have a story. Now, stories like babies... There's sometimes it take a, a while to gestate in the mind of an author. And when they're ready to come out, they let you know. March last year was such a time for me. So the first chapter begins 
it picks up at a certain point in the penultimate chapter of Town of Damalian when Carson fires two shots, Jack the Ripper falls into the water off the ship they were on. Well, what happened after that? Well, he was rescued by a kindly Norwegian fisherman who just happened to be next to the SS city of New York as it was leaving Gravesend in Kent. And then he nursed him back to health, and there the story takes place, you see. Hmm. So where do you come together with these ideas? Like, how do you, how do you know which uh, of these historical events that you're going to use? How do you know what fits him? You know, somebody once asked Henry Miller that. They they asked him, where do your ideas come from? And Henry Miller responded, well, if, if I knew the answer to that, I'd go there myself. You know, usually plotting is my, my big weak point. It's my big bugaboo because I'm a pantser. But while I excel at, at character development and delineation and, and dialogue, I've always had a problem with plot. Not so with this book. And I got into a rhythm. I wrote it every night for virtually every night for nine months i was writing it by hand in my journal and then i would type it up the next day and if it felt right then i would use it and more often than not the events i was writing just felt right so it made sense for me that after after getting out of the insane asylum at napa state hospital in 1914 with the help of some of his friends like theodore roosevelt buffalo bill and so forth that he would migrate back to Hollywood, resume his career as a cameraman, and then he would get a job as a war correspondent taking film for British Pathé during the war effort, which is how he and Kelly reunite in France in 1917 and 1918. So it was just a matter of just trying to seamlessly use all these historical events, like the opening of Buffalo Bill's Hotel, the Irma, in 1902, Buffalo Bill's death in 1917, the war, the Spanish flu pandemic, and all these things, and to somehow make it seamlessly merge with the narrative. Because I have a philosophy about writing historical fiction. I've been doing it since 2012. We're, we're historians. We're not historical novelists. At the same time, you have to respect the history. And since we live in the Internet age, when people literally have information at their fingertips and they can fact-check you on a dime, you, know, you, you mentioned this to C.A. Asbury, my friend from England, um, during her interview about a week or two ago. And she said it's very, very important for a historical novelist to get their facts correct. And she's absolutely right, because you can get fact-checked immediately. And since we're indie authors and we don't have you know, the imprimatur of a big five publishing imprint behind us, our credibility is all we have. So to me, if you're writing about a historical event, like, say, the Jack the Ripper murders, or, say, the Anthony Burns riots in Boston in 1854, which was the subject of another novel of mine, Gods of Our Fathers, you have to respect the history and you have to respect the intelligence and the erudition of your readers who may know about that history as well. So to me, history is like an unalterable iron framework and infrastructure around which you weave your fictional narrative. And I think you need to respect that history in order to make a good account of yourself, which also goes back to the old adage, only write what you know. Well, if we only wrote about what we knew, then there wouldn't be any such thing as this historical novelist, you know? Hmm. So uh, what, would would you say then your uh, history, like your historical events, they are maybe a character in their own way, in their own right? Well, sometimes a, a place or an event can almost seem like a character in its own right, like like all of Whitechapel and and Town of Damalian during the Autumn of Terror of eighteen eighty eight. But to me, the greatest joy is in recreating historical characters, like say Buffalo Bill Cody. Arthur Conan Doyle, Sitting Bull, Annie Oakley, 
some of the major supporting characters in Tattered Amalian and having them interact with my fictional characters like Scott Carson. And that's one of the greatest joys to me, not only reproducing these characters as I imagine them to have been when they were alive, but also to see them interact with my fictional characters. So that to me is one of the greatest joys. But you're right, a, a, an event or a place can almost seem like a character in its own right. Are you doing the research as you go, or is the foundation of the research laying before you start? How does that work? I do the research as I go along, as opposed to a lot of other authors. I've heard of a lot of authors who spend like six months to a year taking off doing research before writing even a word toward the book, or as they're doing the research, they write notes to that end. Me, I like to save time because it, it usually takes me at least anywhere from well, I'd say anywhere from two months to 14 years to write a novel. And to me, stopping everything and holding the presses so I do the requisite research and then writing about it, to me, it seems like a waste of time. So if I feel that I need to research something, I'll do it like right there on the fly. And then once I find out what I need to know, then I'll just continue. But I don't see the point in taking off six months to a year to do just research while you could be writing a new novel, you know? So, yeah, I, I, do, it, I do it concurrently. Can you also... Uh... Talk to us about where fiction meets up with nonfiction. Like, in other words, like you have your fictional characters, then you have your historical characters. And they're obviously in, in two different columns, but they're woven all together. But um, how do you have the confidence, like in a situation, let's suppose uh, a historical character, just by way of example, you give it a historical character a girlfriend, right? And then you don't know for sure whether or not that person had a girlfriend in real life. But you have to fill in the blank, like, in other words, how do you know when you've reached the limit of your research and you haven't covered enough that you can meet it with fiction? Well, Buffalo Bill had a wife, Louisa Frederici, and they had five children, and, and all of them tragically died young. So that part wasn't really, you know, um, an issue. Annie Oakley, another character were, in Tattered Demailing, was married to Frank Butler famously throughout her entire adult life and part of her adolescence. Sitting Bull, I didn't go so much into his romantic history. Arthur Conan Doyle, we know, had a wife back then. In fact, she was expecting their first child in the fall of 1888. So that really didn't really, it, it didn't really factor into my, my narrative. Buffalo Bill, however, in one, one um, conversation with Scott Carson that was brought up by a reviewer in a very positive way, went into his, his history um, as, a, as a scout during the Civil War and his association with Wild Bill Hickok, okay? So when I had a, 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 a historical character like Buffalo Bill Cody having a deep conversation with Scott Carson and Tattered Amalian, it was, it was easy enough for me just to have them reference real-life stories and then have Scott Carson react to that. And in some cases, Scott would criticize him. He, he, he got mad at Buffalo Bill during the, in the, the course of the investigation. He accused him of being a fraud presenting the Wild West in the show the way it really wasn't. And he called him a fraud because he just didn't know any other way to hurt him. Now the two of them made up and they had a conversation. It's one of the best parts in the book, I think. So I, I really didn't feel restricted by any limits because I felt if I just referenced certain key parts of historical characters' history, like say the first time Buffalo Bill shot a man when he was 12 years old, which really did happen, or when he was um, when he killed Yellowhair in the, in the Battle of Warbonnet Creek, or when Sitting Bull went into certain stories about his past, 
that to me was interesting enough so that I didn't have to make anything up and I felt like I was going out on a limb. And then to me, the, the real action is when my fictional characters like Scott Carson interact with these real-life characters while keeping them true to both of their characters. What about um, vocabulary? Making sure that your words are appropriate to the time. How far do you take that? And I could see um, venturing down an avenue where you're sort of questioning every other word, like is this a, you know, is this a phrase or a slang that was used at that time? Like, Do you take that very far and then, you know, and use your intuition to, to, to uh, populate the time? Well, I'm kind of middle of the road about that. I believe that if you're straddling the line between the authentic and the accessible, you can't ever forget that you're writing for a 21st century audience, so you always have to default to the accessible. Now, Scott Carson also has a, a very guttural Middle East, um, Middle East, Lower East Side way of speaking, like his, his friend Kelly McCarthy Delmonico. When I feel like I'm in, I'm kind of like a little far afield, and I'm, I'm doubting whether or not a word or a phrase was around, say, in 1888 or 1913 or 1924 or whatever, I will look it up. And luckily, there are there are, there are sources out there on online dictionaries that tell you when a phrase came into being for the first time, okay? And if it was a little bit, if it wasn't coined until after the time frame I'm writing about, I won't use it, and I'll substitute it for something else. But aside from that, you also can't, forget that you're writing for a modern-day audience, and you can't use exclusively um, 19th century slang. Now, uh, I'm going to illustrate a point here. I, I happen to respect her greatly. I loved her, her uh, Timothy Wilde trilogy, but Lindsay Fay used so much powder flash that she actually needed a glossary at the beginning of all three of the Timothy Wilde books to tell people what this phrase meant, what this word meant, and it was really a distraction. You know, yeah. I think John Barrymore once famously said that a, a footnote is like it's like interrupting somebody's wedding night over and over and over again. And up to a point, he was right. So I, I try to like straddle that line between the accessible and the authentic, but I always defaulted to the to the accessible because I'm not writing for a 19th century audience. I'm writing for a 21st century audience. So you have to like give a little, you know, at some point and just compromise now uh scott carson how do you develop his character how do you know um what areas you want to um develop you know characters to me especially my own they're like real people in the respect that it takes time to get to know them. now when i first began writing tattered malian when i wrote the, the prologue which took place in 1923 hollywood he's talking to tom mix and Tom Mix asked him, hey, I hear that you chased after Jack the Ripper back in the day. And that's when Scott Carson goes into the, the, the tale of Tanner Damalian. I got the impression immediately that he was a social maladroit. He was in like a basement rat. And he, he really was kind of um, a social maladroit, very, very shy. He doesn't really believe in, you know, small talk and, and all that stuff. And then as the story developed, I got to learn about him more and more, just like you would learn about a real-life human being. So characters are like people. You just take a little bit of time to get to know them, and the more I wrote about him, the more I discovered about him. So what do you dislike about Scott Carson the most? Probably the fact that he doesn't have a lot of social graces. He's, he's clumsy, and he doesn't like being the center of attention. He'd rather be behind the camera than in front of it. He, he needs to really work on that, but he... Over the course of um, the Scott Carson saga, which encompasses many novels and a novella and a couple of short stories that I've published, he's gradually coming out of a shell, and he's, he's finding out more about himself 
And while he doesn't, he stops short of calling himself a hero. Nonetheless, he does admit that, yes, when I see something that's, that's, I think is wrong, if I see somebody being wronged, you know, I'm going to be the first one in the fray, whether I like it or not, regardless of the psychological toll on him. Now, Tandard Amalian is different from Hollywoodland in that that takes place over a period of just two months during the, 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 the uh, autumn of terror, 1888, whereas Hollywoodland takes place over a period of three dozen years. So in Tandard Amalian, we saw a radical change in Scott Carson's character because he made the mistake of getting personally and romantically involved with Mary Kelly, Jack the Ripper's final victim. Okay. Over the course of Hollywoodland, over 36 years, we're seeing a more gradual, but nonetheless, no less significant evolution of his character because it takes place over three dozen years. Hollywoodland essentially sums up most of his adult life, essentially. Okay. So that's the one thing that I think Scott could, could work on, but it really, it's, it's part of his character. But he's also got other wonderful qualities, like he does become the reluctant hero and detective on occasion when he feels the need to, regardless of the psychological toll that it imposes on him. And he, he's got more good qualities than, than bad qualities. I mean, you have to have a character who's not only with which readers can sympathize, but also empathize. He has to be likable. You know, I've read a lot of novels from other novelists where I really didn't like the protagonist very much at all because they were so socially challenged. I'm not going to mention names, of course, but, you know, Carson does have that, that shyness that a lot of people would also find, you know, winning. I mean, one reviewer called, called him lovable, which I think is a very spot-on assessment of him. Hmm. So when you put in um, other characters other than the main theme that you're writing, like Jack the Ripper or something, when you have other characters put into the story, are they there to bring out something in Carson or to show the the reader something about Carson? Well, first and foremost, any supporting character has to help move the plot along. If, if they don't move the plot along, they have no business being in there. I, I had a character originally in the first draft of Town to Demelian called Joseph Fourfeathers, who was a fascinating character. He was um, a member of the tribal police of the Standing Rock Agency that killed Sitting Bull in 1890. And while he didn't have a hand in that, he nonetheless migrated to Chicago and he became a Penguin detective. I was going to have him go to Whitechapel and work with the team, and then I just couldn't find a place for him, so I had to write him out. You know, Stephen King once famously said that when he was writing a stand decades ago, he created a character called The Kid, which he really, really loved. It was one of his favorite characters ever, but he couldn't find a place for him in the book, so he had to write him out. Joseph Forefathers was the same to me. Not many people know this, and this is the first time I'm saying it out loud in public, but yeah, there was another character in Tattered Demalion when I finished the first draft in, in 2013, but I had to write him out because he wasn't advancing the plot. And when you begin looking for excuses to keep your character in a book, maybe it's time to write them out. So, yeah, Kelly brings out certain good things in Scott in, um, in, in The Dollmaker when she's only 13 years old, when I introduced her character. And, of course, over the course of Hollywoodland, she brings out certain parts of him that really need to, you know what I mean? So she is part of his evolution, you know, his, at least his emotional and, and intellectual evolution, you see. Hmm. What, what, what do you feel your relationship with your character like Scott Carson is? How do you feel about your characters? I, I love them. Um, do you feel like they're like your children, or do you feel like... I hear that from a lot of fiction authors, so I, I throw that question in just to see what you 
have as your own relationship? Well, a lot of authors look at their books as their children. To me, my characters are like friends. And if I don't want to say goodbye to them, if I want to, if I want to bring them back in a story that I think they can support, then I will. This is, that's why almost all my major characters turn out to be series characters. And Carson is one that has proven to be more prolific than any other character that I've ever written out of all the series that I've written and started. Carson is the one that just fascinates me the most because photography back in the late 19th century, if you were good at what you did once word got around, it put you in contact with a lot of powerful people, people that could afford to get their pictures taken more than once in a lifetime, especially with the advent of film, which actually was first created in 1888. Ironically, during the Autumn of Terror, it was done by um, Le Prince, who he filmed two two-second films that were in Leeds, England in September of 1888, right in the middle of the Autumn of Terror. But when you were a photographer back in the 19th century, and if you had the right connections, and with him, it started with Jake Reese, the anti-poverty crusader, and then that eventually led to a meeting with Buffalo Bill, and that just opened up the whole earth, the planet Earth for Scott. And before you knew it, he's hobnobbing with the likes of Buffalo Bill Cody, Sidney Bulb, Annie Oakley, and then eventually all the greats in Hollywood, okay, including all the great actors and actresses, um, the, the great Rhode Island producer Thomas Ince, who created Inceville on the Malibu coast in, in 1912. And it just opens up the whole world to Carson, which is why he's in such a, a wonderful position at such a wonderful place in time. He's like, he's almost like the Forrest Gump of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Whenever something great happens or something infamous happens, like the Ripper murders, um, the H.H. H. Holmes series of murders in Chicago during the exposition of 1893, which is the subject of another novel I'm still working on, The Murder Machine, all the way to the New Orleans Axeman murders of uh, 1918, 1919, the development of motion pictures in Hollywood, World War I. Carson is there. He always finds himself in the middle of these things, whether he wants to be or not. So I think part of the, 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 the charm and the appeal of Scott Carson to me is that he's right there in the middle of all these, these wonderful and horrible things that are happening in the, in the earlier part of our nation's history. And that, that puts him in a, in a, an ideal position to give his worms our view of what he sees going on above him, starting with the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888. Do you have an underlying theme going on uh, kind of behind the scene? Not, not, so you have the major story happening and you have the relationships with the characters, both real and fictional, but is there also a story you're telling under that? I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. Um, well, is, is there something like, okay, so I take the book home, Hollywoodland. Let's say I take it home, I read it, and I, 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 I love it. I get through a lot of the story. I understand kind of what's gone on. But is there something else you want me to take away from that book besides the main theme? Well, if you're asking if I have an overarching morality to it, no, I don't really do morality. And... I look at myself as a glorified entertainer. I'm a novelist. I look to entertain people, help them escape life for a little while. I'm not a literary novelist like John Irving. I mean, I have purple patches on my books here and there, but I'm not trying to be a literary novelist. So I don't have any great message to impart to my readers. Now, if in the course of their reviews, if they happen to see something, if they happen to see a legitimate viewpoint or a morality at play and they want to bring it out, and if I think that they're right, then, you know, that's so much the better. I mean, the novelist's opinion of their own work is only one of many. 
or depending on how many people read the book. And my opinion is just one. If somebody else has a different take on it, who am I to argue with what they say? If, if there's anything that would come even close to an overarching morality or a message, it's that you know, evil is self-consuming. It's that was the whole. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Rationale behind the Godfather trilogy. Evil is self-consuming. At least that's what I think Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola were getting at when they did the Godfather trilogy, but evil at some point has to end. Now, I read you the first, the opening paragraph of the, um, the prologue for Hollywoodland, 
Kelly goes on to write that her her late husband, who died four years before in 1920, she's packing up his books. A book falls on her on her foot, and she's packing them up. She picks it up. It's a book by the Persian philosopher Zarathustra, or Zoroaster. And she opens it up, and she starts leafing through it. And then she sees the part where Zoroaster is talking about the never-ending battle between good and evil. And she uses this as a way to introduce the story by saying, this kind of reminds me of my my, my, my pal Scott Cawthon's never-ending battle with Jack the Ripper that took us to the Hollywood, Hollywood land sign in 1923. Okay? And this is her, her reference point. This is the, the metaphor that she uses. It's like a Zoroastrian never-ending battle between good and evil. And it's a battle that has to end sooner or later. And eventually it does at the Hollywood land sign. Of course, I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but it does reach a conclusion in 1923 as they're still building the Hollywood land sign in the summer of 1923. And I figured, what more dramatic way to end the book than with that? I mean, that was something that I knew I wanted to do from the outset way back March of last year when I began writing the book. And I said, sure, why not? Just go for it. And it was just a matter of just writing all all the chapters and all the events that just was inexorably aimed toward that dramatic denouement. So, sure. So what does what does writing do for you? Like, um, do you feel um, a power or an energy, or do you feel um, drained after you write? Like, where where does it take you? That's just a really good question. To me, the writing isn't about power, except maybe in a very abstract um, form of self-empowerment, to me, it, it energizes me. When I have a great day writing, especially if I'm writing very well, both in terms of quality and quality, yeah, I'm going to feel energized by the end of the day, and I'm going to want to, like, you know, go to bed and pick up a journal and just do more. It also, to me, is like, it's like intellectual respiration, you know? I feel that if I'm not writing, I feel guilty, and I set about and I correct that. And that's why people say to novice writers, by way of advice, write, 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 which is another thing that my friend Christine Asbury said during your interview with her a week or two ago, keep writing. Because writing is like, it's, it's like a physical muscle. If you don't use it, it'll get flaccid and then it'll atrophy. So writing is important. Uh, what do you think about these um, current publishing conditions and the way um, things are, self-publishing, Amazon, publishing companies and all that? How, do, how does that work for a writer? The beauty of self-publishing, especially on Amazon, the great thing about that is a democratized self-publishing, a democratized publishing. The downside of that is that a democratized publishing I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to go into, you know, all my, my gripes and, and grouses about Amazon because well, God knows I got plenty of them. But let's just say that I'll unpack it a little bit by saying that, yeah, there are a lot of people out there that are publishing books who really don't know what they're doing. And maybe those books never should have been published. Now, self-publishing involves a learning curve like anything else, especially if you're a, a largely a one-man operation like me. You know, I happen to have a great copy editor. Her name Emma Crow. Um, you can find her at T. Crow Edits on, on Facebook. She's very good. She's quick. She's thorough. And she's she's got very competitive rates. And I also have um, a cover designer out of Mobile, Alabama named James Moore. He operates a little business out of Alabama called Design to Ross. And he's been making my cover since 2015 when I published Gods of Our Fathers. That was our first project together. And we knocked it out in six hours flat. 
So you have to have good copy editing. You have to have a good cover artist to make your work look presentable because the cover is, of course, the reader's or the potential reader's first impression of the book. And plus, you also have to know how to format your book and then to navigate within the system that Amazon gives you or Lulu or Kobo or Smashwords or whatever platform you're going through. So there are, there are a lot of drawbacks to self-publication. You're, you have total, complete creative control, but you also don't have that, that, that uh, marketing apparatus that you would have with a big five publisher, which you would have to provide largely your own anyway. You know, usually only the big names like John Grisham, Stephen King, and so forth and so on, usually they get the big media push. The rest of us, if we, if we ever get lucky enough to have a big five contract, we generally have to rely on, you know, notices in the local paper and basically generate our own, our own publicity. And it's not fair, but it is what it is. So, yeah, with self-publication, you exercise complete creative control, but at the same time, you're also seeding um, outreach and, and publicity, and you have to learn how to be your own marketer. And a lot of authors, they like me, they, they don't really excel at that because we just want to be writers. We just want to be writing our next book. We're not full of brush salesmen. We're novelists, and this is what we want to do. But that's the reality, and we can either just ignore it or we can just you know, go with it. It is what it is. So what fiction have you read that um, really sticks out, or it, it, it actually probably affects your writing? It might even have changed the way you write. Is there something in the fiction world that um, you, that is impressive? Well, I have to offer a, a very obvious example. I first read The Alienist by Caleb Carr in 1996. It was two years after it came out. And then right after that, I found out The Angel of Darkness had come out that year, so I read that. Those to me, those are the gold standards for historical psychological thrillers. And I knew way back in 1996, which was about two years after I began writing fiction in my own right, I knew I wanted to write a historical epic, but it just took me until 2012 before I finally came up with the idea of Town of Damalian. And I began floating this idea around with people that I knew. You know, suppose you get Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley and Arthur Conan Doyle and Sitting Bull and a bunch of other people and Fred Aberline and you have them look after, look for Jack the Ripper in 1888. And they all said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Go with it. So I did. And Tattered Marilyn was the result. When I wrote that book, I realized just how much I really loved researching history, especially the history of my native city of New York. Okay. And that the same also applied when I was researching the history of mid 19th century Boston when writing Gods of Our Fathers later on that same year that I published Tattered Marilyn. I realized and it shouldn't have surprised me because I've been a political blogger for exactly 16 years. You know, I, I wrote my first political blog post 16 years ago to the day. I realized that, wow, I'm really good at historical research, even though that's what I've been doing as a political blogger since 2005. And I, I developed this really powerful interest in history, especially the history of my, my, my hometown, New York City. So if you want to know what set me off on my course to write historical psychological thrillers, you can thank Caleb Carr. He was my inspiration, and his novels, the Laszlo Chrysler novels, showed me the potential for historical fiction, what, how, how high of a bar that he had set, because they are brilliantly written. Some people would say they're overly long, they're you know, indulgent, and, and so forth, and you may have a case there, but it just gives you a larger world in which to, to meander when you're reading for these books. And I've read each of them at least two or three times over since 1996. 
And to me, they are the gold standard. They are the benchmark. So it's really important to you to, to, to write correctly about historical figures. What Actually, what is the thing, the key thing for you when you're writing about actual real people? Well, as I'd said, it's always important to remain true to the history. I, um, I, I first discovered Lindsay Fay when she, she wrote a book about Jack the Ripper and Sherlock Holmes. And it was while I was researching, you know, Jack the Ripper in, in preparation for writing Tower to the Malian. And I believe it was a Smoke and Mirrors or something. I forget the, the exact title. Sorry, Lindsay, if you're listening to this. And she, she made me realize, wow, she really did her homework because I was reading the same exact things that I was reading in the course of my research for Tower to the Malian. I realized that she crossed all her T's, dotted all her I's, minded her P's and Q's, and she got everything, I mean everything correct about the Jack the Ripper, um, the Jack the Ripper history. So that, that made me walk away with a respect and an appreciation for history and how other novelists treat it. I, re I read some other historical novels where the chronology was just tortured beyond all recognition, and it, it doesn't even resemble history anymore. I'm not going to mention names, of course, but I read a, a novel about Annie Oakley, who is you know, an amateur detective in this book. And I realized, oh, my God, you changed around everything. And this is wrong. This is so wrong. So to me, if you're going to write about a historical figure, you're allowed a certain amount of artistic license, I think, because, you know, there's nobody around today who remembers what Buffalo Bill was like because he died in January of 1917. But you also have to make his reimagined character reasonably true or what, maybe what, what Stephen Colbert would call truthiness. But you need to, like, stay true to the, the subject matter and to the basic character of that character. Like, in my case, and like, like say, you know, Annie Oakley, who is very much a feminist, and she sometimes upbraids Scott Carson for, ma for making some really stupid comment. And Frank Butler was always very protective of his wife, Annie, which is why he was in Whitechapel in, in, in the novel Tanner Damalian. Sitting Bull, very stoic, very taciturn, but very wise. And Buffalo Bill, who's just a larger-than-life character, you know, and Scott Carson was there to just describe all of them to us as if I was watching these people. To me, writing a novel is like watching a movie with my third eye in slow motion. You see, I not only see things, I also hear things. So to me, accuracy is all important, but even when you're straying into fiction, it still has to be very plausible. Right. Do you find it um, difficult to write as, as the female characters, or do you not have an issue with that? I don't have an issue with that at all because, I don't know, I, I just seem to have, um, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I understand everything there is to know about women. Like a lot of guys, I'm very perplexed about women, even at my age. But I know what female behavior looks like. I know what it sounds like. And again, I, I see these things like a movie in my mind's eye. So that's why... And during certain ports, parts of, um, of Hollywoodland, for instance, there's a scene where they're at her place in Chinatown during the pandemic of 1918. And she wants Scott to stay with her for another day or two. This is after they come back from France, from World War I France. And he says, well, Kelly, you got a wife and two kids across town on 17th Street. You need to get back to them. And she just totally goes off on him. 
She says, oh, my God, is, is it asking too much to want to be with my man, the man that I love, for just another couple of days? And she starts throwing her, his clothes at him, and she tells him to get the hell out of my apartment. And then finally she has an emotional breakdown, which was very rare for her in the book. And then she finally admits, you know, I'm trying to escape reality here. I'm trying to, like, hang on to happiness for another day or two because we've been surrounded by death. There's the war. There's the pandemic. And I've got this wonderful thing going on in my little apartment with you, and I just want to hang on to it for another day or two. And then Scott realizes where she's coming from. And that's an example, I think, of where I think I, I, I nailed female behavior. And I run it by my beta readers. And my, my, my copy editor, Tamara Crow, is a woman, obviously. And, you know, they've all told me, yeah, you, you've, you've got it nailed. So I really don't have much of a challenge crossing gender lines when I'm creating my characters and delineating them. So what is the biggest challenge to write? What's the hardest thing for you to write? What 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 part of, of a book? The plotting. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I told you earlier in the interview that for me, my big bugaboo was always from plotting because I'm a pantser by nature. I tried outlining books. I tried outlining Tatter Demalion when I was writing it in earnest in 2013. I just can't do it. I could write the greatest outline for the greatest novel ever written. And I'm inevitably, always, 110% of the time, I'm going to deviate from the outline. So, you know, while it's a good idea to have to have a, a good sense of where you're going and where you're you're ultimately going to wind up, it, it's it's it really comes down to that little paper thin no man's land between the, the fingers and the keyboard, or or the the nib of the pen and the paper. That's where the real writing takes place. And I think every writer understands that. So at some point, we're really all pantsers. Because we never really know what we're going to do until we do it. Yeah, that's true. It is. Uh, there is always an element of it, inevitably. Like you can't uh, control every turn of the screw to a granular level. But I think uh, that doesn't mean you're bad at plot. I think what you just described probably uh, encapsulates your understanding of plot. That there can be overriding parameters. You could know in general the direction you're going in, but uh, you know within it you need to have freedom. Is that more or less it? That's exactly it, Alan. I believe that you went into that with my friend Christine Asbury. Again, I know I'm mentioning her a lot, but she's a very dear friend of mine. She's a co-admin of my book and writing group, Book Horrors, so I, I trust her with, with just about, I trust her with my life, basically. And she went into this with her, her interview with you, and she said, essentially, yeah, I'm, I'm a pantser, and, you know, sometimes the, the most wonderful thing in the world is when I have to change something because the characters want to change it, and I realize it's the better way to go. Now, I've always had a philosophy. I have a few axioms, a few maxims that guide me in my writing life. And one of them is surprise for the writer, surprise for the reader. If you can genuinely make yourself laugh or cry or surprise yourself, you're pretty much bound to have the same effect on any reader, especially you know ones that aren't as jaded as some. If you can make yourself laugh or cry, if you can surprise yourself, you're probably going to have the same effect on the reader, and that's always a good thing. What what is the on that note? That's another thing I was curious about. What is the main emotion you feel your work captures? Is it in the vein, uh, you know, is it just the epic sweep? Is it the humor, the tension? Uh, where are you at with it emotionally? Well, at least as far as Hollywoodland goes, the book runs the whole gamut of emotions: just rage and love and, and sadness. And yeah, there is humor. There are many, many sexual scenes in, in Hollywoodland. It's very much an adult novel. But you, you also get that with Tattered Demalion, and you get that with a lot of my books. Um, in Tattered Demalion, Scott Carson forms a, 
a romantic relationship with Mary Kelly, Jack the Ripper's final victim. Her death at the end of the book, no spoiler there, because we all know what happened to Mary Kelly on November 9th of 1888, affects the rest of his entire life. It pretty much charts the arc of a psychological evolution throughout the rest of the Scott Carson saga, even though it spans decades. Okay, Hollywood Land especially is very, very high in emotion. The, the, the passion between between um, Kelly McCarthy and, and Scott Carson, the, the hatred and the antipathy between Carson and the Ripper's never-ending vendetta with him. Remember, he chases them all over the planet over decades. Okay, and I think I think if any one theme, if any one unifying theme, if any one dominant emotion governs Hollywoodland, I would say it's the power of love and how it triumphs in the end. I'm not going to give you the ending, of course, but I think that if any one emotion predominates over all the others, it's it's love, and you have to do that. You can't let rage be the dominant theme of your book because it makes the reader walk away, you know, kind of like with a bad taste in the mouth. So, so what do you? Um... Where does this all come from? You, from you, we 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 haven't got your history. So, um, did you have a history that led you into writing, um, or was there something that happened? Like maybe maybe give us a little of your background so we kind of know where you come from here. Well, I never had a, a come to Jesus moment or a road to Damascus moment that's that determined. Yes, you're going to be a writer for the rest of your life. It was just like a slow accretion of. Of desires and, and and hopes and dreams, I guess, that eventually led me to writing. From the time I was in high school, my my senior year in high school, I was a poet, and I did that for the next 19 years of my life. But before that 19-year period ended in 1996, I'd already been a novelist for about two and a half years. So I was for a brief period of time, I was doing both. Uh, my 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 friend X J Kennedy, who's a who's a noted poet and versifier and textbook writer, kept telling me during the course of our correspondence, Robert, you should you should try your hand at prose. You, you should try it. You have a real knack for it. So finally, in 1994, I decided to do something about that. I wrote my first novel, which, believe it or not, got me a literary agent almost in no time. It didn't go anywhere, but it, um, it led me to believe in 1996, when I first got this agent, that, yeah, I am doing some things right, and maybe I should continue doing this. So I've been writing fiction over the last 27 years of my life, and um, I've, I've Creatively speaking, I've never been happier. So it wasn't really a single, you know, blinding epiphany that, that led me to, to write. It was a, a gradual feeling toward that eventual, that, that eventual, I, I don't know, career path or career arc, I guess you could call it. So hmm. that, that's that's my answer. So where are you going to go with this now? How long? How many more books are you going to you going to cover with Scott Carson, or what? What's your future look like? Well, there are a lot of Scott Carson novels that I've started in years past that I haven't finished. In fact, even though I've got, um, let me think, I have a novella called Ragman, which takes place in Texas in 1896. Where Scott Carson helps spring Scott Joplin from a, a bogus murder charge. And I've also started um, a novel called um, The Murder Machine, which takes place in Chicago during the exposition of 1893, where Scott and Buffalo Bill's team and Harry Houdini reunite and they go after H.H. H. Holmes. I've also started uh, Jazz Man, which takes place during the New Orleans Axeman murders of 1918-1919. And then before I even, even thought about finishing those novels, and there are others, I also started a spinoff series with um, Angelo Delmonico, Kelly's husband and Scott's friend, 
over, I think it was before I published Hollywoodland in December last year, I began a new Scott Carson novel. This one is called The End of the World. Now, the reason I decided to write this is because there was always a 10-year gap in Scott Carson's life between 1902 and 1912 that I never went into. That year was just a total cipher, a total blank. So I decided to fill in the blank by pulling, putting him in Dawson City in northwestern Canada in 1905. There's, there's a traumatic experience that happens to him in Hollywood land in 1902 during the, the opening of Buffalo Bill's famous hotel, the Irma, that led him to just get away from it all. And to him, the end of the world was Dawson City, Alaska. So I've been doing a lot of research about the gold rush of the late 19th century and, and you know what it was like in Dawson around 1905. And that's the book I'm working on right now. In fact, I'm working with my graphic designer on a new cover even as we speak. So there are a lot of Scott Carson novels that I've started and that eventually I hope to finish every single one of them to like fill out the chronology. It's, it's actually more, more of, a, of a cycle than a series, you know, because like I said, I started, um, I started uh, a couple of crossover novels with, um, with Delmonico and Carson or sometimes just Delmonico that crosses over into the Gods of Our Fathers cast of characters, which is um, about a biracial cop in 1854 Boston in Gods of Our Fathers during the Anthony Burns riots at the same time the Boston PD was formed. Well, later in life, as he's about to end his career, Van Zandt gets a call from Angelo Delmonico, and that's how the crossover begins when a series of murders starts, you know, they start discovering bodies in both Boston and New York. So that's how I tie the two the, the two series together in a crossover. So it's re really rather a whole cycle rather than just a Scott Carson series. There are spinoff characters. There are crossovers. It, it's a massive thing, you know, and it's getting to be unmanageable. But how do you know when, uh, when one is ready to go, when you're ready to let go of a book? Is there a certain point or is it just come to you? Because uh, you said you don't like to do the outline and all this stuff. You're kind of going with it. So all of a sudden, is there a point that you go, this is it, this is ready? Well, as a poet once famously said, poets don't finish poems, they abandon them. And the same thing, I think, goes for novels. Um, you, you write the first draft, and then, of course, you have, to begin, you have to begin the revision phase. Your copy editor goes over it, weeds out all the typos. Okay, my first instinct, since my books tend to be fairly long, is to extract any extraneous words from the book. I mean, Tatter Demelian's first draft started out as, as 251,000 words. I realized no literary agent in the country was going to touch that. So I spent the next 15 months of my life, and don't forget, I was in my 50s when I began this book. There's a lot of time for a guy my age to spend on one book. I worked on Tatter Demelian for nearly two and a half years, because that's how much I believed in it. But I got it down from 251,000 words to about 193,000 and change. I, I went out all the unnecessary words, all the extraneous words. And then when I think that I finally got all the typos out, and when I think that I got the chronology right and all the characters are, are acting according to their characters, you know, then at some point I say, okay, it's time to leave the nest. And then I'll just, I'll just release it. I'll launch it and I'll go on to the next book. Wow. Um, okay. So now do you have a, website or do you have a place that you want people to come find you or find out about you or find your books or where do you recommend well i do have a couple of pages on facebook as well as my book horrors writing group which is about a little over 1310 people i think it's a pretty active community but i, I don't use it so much for my own 
work. I, I do have a Scott Carson page. It's called Scott Carson's Literary Emporium on Facebook, where you can go and you can get like news on the latest launches, like um, and news like this interview, for instance, which for me is a big hairy deal. I've never been on national syndicated radio before, but anything anything new that I have to impart, you know, I'll put on my Scott Carson page. I also have another page called the Megan McNamara Saga, which is um, it's about my next to last release, which was, um, I believe, April of last year. It was called The River Never Speaks, and it's the beginning of yet another series, um, hopefully just a trilogy. And so it's a contemporary thriller about a woman that was kidnapped in Wisconsin in 1999, and then she escaped about five years and three months later after undergoing the most horrendous torture. And she later becomes a police officer and becomes instrumental in investigating her own case, even though it's considered to be not just a cold case, it's a closed case. And then she discovers that her entire life is based not just on a lie, but on a delusion. And she finds out what and who she really is. So there's the Megan McNamara page on Facebook. There's the Scott Carson Literary Emporium on Facebook. Believe it or not, I don't have a writer's blog. I, I just don't have the time for that because I have a political blog, and that's how I make my money. I've been doing that for 16 years. But when I do, what, what I do do is I, I, every month I have an author of the month. And I pick an author, and I interview them with a 15-question interview that I do via email. And then I post the results on my political blog, sort of as a palate cleanser. But to me, it's also a very necessary ingredient to my blog. So I, I interview an author every month, and I, I put the interview questions and answers up. And then I just pick another author the following month. So if you're asking me if I have an online presence, that's it. Okay. Well, what we'll do is we'll put that on our website so people can find you real easy, anybody listening. Um, our guest has been Robert Crawford, and the book, uh, his newest book that we were talking about, Hollywood Land, it's a Scott Carson novel. Thank you for being here, Robert. And thank you for having me, Alan. It's been an honor. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. 
To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.